0: New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy.
2: Welcome to this new episode of New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. I am your host, Ander Bernardi, from Oxford Brooks University, and today I am with Yuan Yuen Ang from the University of Michigan to talk about her recent book, published by Cornell University Press in 2016. This is How China Escaped the Poverty Trap, an amazing book on the transformation of political and economic institutions in China in the past decades. Welcome to the podcast, Yuan.
0: Thank you very much for having me. I'm really delighted to uh, share with you um, this book and my research.
2: Thanks for being here. Uh, Maybe let's start with your current and past affiliations, so your academic career.
0: Yeah, I am a political scientist based at the University of Michigan, and uh, previously I was a faculty member at Columbia University. Uh, and I received my PhD from Stanford. Uh, In terms of my research, I study political economy from a complexity perspective, uh, meaning that my research centers on interdependence, uncertainty, uh, adaptation, and learning. And you can see all of these uh, elements uh, explored in my study of uh, China in this book that we are talking about today.
2: In the preface of the book, uh, you start with this book grew out of an early book I had abandoned. <laughs> so this is a very interesting start. Huh? Uh, can you tell us how did you arrive to this book?
0: Yes, yeah, so the book is focused on China, but actually this is a book that is more than about China. It is more broadly a book about uh, rethinking the whole paradigm of development And what it's trying to do is really to challenge the linear mechanistic thinking that has always uh, underpinned our understanding of political economic development. And as you rightly pointed out in the preface... Uh, Initially, I was trying to explain the very complex dynamic changes in in China, but I was completely stuck. I was unable to do that. Uh, As long as I was uh, uh, trained and applying the traditional paradigm of linear thinking, uh, I I just couldn't explain the story. And so that is why I had to completely throw away uh, my previous project and my previous style of narrative and adopt a whole new one. And so the one that you currently see is really focused on complexity, systems thinking, uh, how do you build institutions for adaptation and innovation? And so with this new paradigm, this new worldview, I then told a completely different story of how China escaped the poverty trap.
2: So let's start from the very main concept, the poverty trap. For the listeners that are not familiar with this concept, what is it?
0: Yeah, I the, the concept of poverty trap is quite simply put, it is the idea that countries are poor because they are weak or backward, and that they are weak or backward because they are poor. Right. So the concept of poverty trap captures the reality that economic and institutional conditions are mutually reinforcing, thereby creating a trap. And why I emphasize this at the outset is to challenge the idea that development is just about growth. Um, Because in order to have economic growth, you need to have the right institutions. But in order to have the right institutions, you need economic growth. So we have always been stuck in this chicken and egg problem of which comes first. So that is the starting problem of, of the book. And I try to explain, looking at the important case of China, how did it get out of this trap?
2: So by the end of the book and by the end of the interview, we will know uh, how China escaped from the poverty problem. <laughs> in the meantime, let's start from chapter one, where if I can read, you report a hmm. quotation and you say, In Why Nations Fail, Acemoglu and Robinson struggle to make sense of China's rise. So, what's the difficulty for economists in explaining China's rise, and what? How did you um, try with your field work to provide an explanation?
0: That is a great place to start. And in fact, I would um, I would change the questions slightly. I, I believe that uh, the traditional literature, including Ase Moklu and Robinson, they don't just have difficulty explaining China, they have difficulty explaining development in general. Uh, and the reason for this is that there is a chicken and egg problem between growth and institutions, right? So if Asa Mokloo and Robinson argue that we need to have these good, strong institutions for economic growth, then where do these good, strong institutions come from? And according to them, it comes from history. It's endowed by colonial legacies. Uh, Then if that is true, then it means that if you are a poor country and you happen to have a bad history, you are stuck forever, right? Because you do not have the right historical endowments to create the good institutions in order to have growth. So if you look at all of the canonical literature and development, they're all stuck in one way or another. And that's because they all subscribe to a linear thinking, right, from A to B and so forth. So when when we look at the China case, Asad Mogul and Robinson can't explain it because China did not adopt Western-style democracy, especially in the 80s, it does not fit any of the description of inclusive or non-extractive institutions. Um, And so if you read their chapter on China carefully, um, their explanation boils down to uh, China got lucky. Uh, But that I think uh, most of us would agree is not a satisfactory or rigorous explanation uh, for this very important case. Uh, so my approach is, is to, to explaining China into development is very different, um, and it has two elements. Uh, the first element is that uh, I argue that the first step out of the poverty trap is a counterintuitive one, which is instead of having good institutions, you need to use what you have. So poor and backward countries need to turn their weaknesses into advantages. And you can find that all throughout China's reform history. Uh, And my second answer to how China escaped the poverty trap is that you do need to create an adaptive environment, an environment where either state or social actors can experiment and learn and use what they have effectively. And this system I call directed improvisation. So this would be the uh, sort of uh, short sort of a slogan for remembering the answer in the book, Directed Improvisation. So
2: those two concepts are relevant not only for your understanding of the Chinese case, but also for other developing countries.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. In fact, in the if, if you look at the final chapter of the book, uh, I take these concepts and I revisit uh, Western history and I look at the case of uh, contemporary Nigeria, And what you'll find is that um, I think a lot of Western history is actually told in a way that is inaccurate. So we have this um, sort of whitewash account that the rise of the West is because the West created good institutions and therefore had growth. But if you look at the history of the West very carefully, it has many parallels with what we see in China, which is that people started with institutions that are weak or wrong uh, or or normatively dysfunctional, but they turned it into advantages as a first step of development. Uh, You find this in the rise of regional trade in late medieval Europe. You find this in risky public financing methods in uh, 19th century America. And you even find the same method being employed in contemporary Nigeria, where I looked at how the film industry known as Nollywood was able to take off in the absence of um, intellectual property rights. Talking
2: about those institutions and the European tradition of describing them as a key prerequisite for economic development, and that you at the beginning of the book define as Weberian institutions. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell our listeners what we are talking about in particular? What we have been arguing are the formal institutional prerequisites for economic development.
0: Yeah, that, I, I think that's a great place uh, to clarify. Uh, when we talk about good, strong institutions uh, in development, in the literature, we actually impose our normative standards on what is a good institution. So when we say something's a good institution, we really mean that it looks like a first world Western institution, right? And we regard every other institutional form that does not conform to the first world standard as a weak or bad institution. And what my book argues is that if you drop this normative standard, what you'll find is that normatively weak institutions can be functionally strong. And this is uh, true throughout the developing world and throughout early Western history. And so the reason why we've been stuck is that we have actually given ourselves this false normative assumption that there is only one type of good institution in this world. So in the case of bureaucracy, we assume that only barbarian, legal rational, you know, very legalistic rule following state agencies are the best and everything else is, is, is a bad deviation. And I show that that is not true. In fact, for any given institution, if you can repurpose it to fit the goals of early development, it can actually be turned into an advantage.
2: Very good. So let's move now to China and to your fieldwork. Uh, in the book, you will find a map of China with three provinces uh, that uh, you have visited and three uh, counties and cities uh, that are part of your empirical uh, work. So we will, um, of course, they they, they they are anonymized. So for Ubei province, uh, your case study was the so-called Ambo County. For Jejian mm-hmm. province, uh, the case study was in a city called, uh, in, in the Blessed County. And for uh, Fujian province, uh, the Forest Hill City. So tell us... Uh, uh, in which way this empirical work fits with your theoretical framework and what we need to learn from those uh, three uh, case studies about the success or the Chinese economic transition despite the assumptions of the Western European biased economic theory.
0: Right. Uh, great. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about fieldwork. Uh, this book is very heavily uh, draws on fieldwork. I did more than uh, 400 uh, interviews uh, focusing on these three different regions. Uh, let me explain a little why uh, we need to actually take a subnational kind of local approach. Um, And that is because China is a very big country. Uh, Sometimes we forget that it is more like a continent uh, than a country, because different parts of China have such different conditions and, and speed of economic and institutional change. And so that is why the book on the one hand talks about the changes in China on a national level. But in the second part of the book, it then looks at given this national framework, what are the subnational differences? And that is why I picked three very different localities. And they represent, you know, the most prosperous uh, coastal locale. The inland, the most, in a sense, most backward uh, locales in China. And then I had a middle case, which was my main case. And I call it my Goldilocks case uh, because it was in a coastal province of China, but it was in the inland region of a coastal province and so that makes it my Goldilocks case because it changed neither too fast or too slow but uh, the speed was just right for me to trace the coevolution of economy and institutions and so by comparing these three cases uh, there is one important takeaway which is that these three cases share similarities in the sense that they were all operating under a national system of directed improvisation, where they had the conditions as local governments to experiment and find solutions that fit local conditions. But at the same time, they are very different precisely because their local conditions are different. So they took on different strategies at different points in time. um, And and they also have spillovers, um, the kind of development that happens on the coast. Eventually spill over and affects the inland regions, and so by taking this perspective, we can see both the parts of China that are unified and, and the same, but also the parts of China that are extremely different from one another.
2: Well, in fact, uh, the, not only you uh, you clearly now um, st- argue that China is a very large um, um, nation. In fact, it is a subcontinent, but from your Um, book, we also understand that, uh, yes, there was a degree of central coordination, but there was also a form of autonomy in the provinces to experiment uh, some uh, different innovative policies and also the central policy. in fact even the the tank shopping policies were first experimented somewhere before being deployed to to the rest of the country Uh, but uh, i I would like to ask you a complex uh, question which is if you can briefly describe the evolution of the Chinese economic reforms in the past, uh, say, three, four decades uh, for those that which, which are not familiar with China?
0: Sure. And for, uh, at the outset, there is one fact that is very useful to know, which is that there are Different Chinas, they are very, very different Chinas, have evolved in the past 40 years. And I think many people do not realize that. They often talk about China as if it is a static monolith. Uh, but in fact, you have had very different Chinas. A Mao-era China, a Deng-era China, and Xi-era China are three very different Chinas. So my book is focused on the Deng era, which is uh, 1978 to 2012. And in 2012, China had a new leader, Xi Jinping, and that is known as the Xi era. Uh, so the Deng era is, of course, you know, the period in China that completely transformed the country and took it from an impoverished communist uh, society into the world's uh, second largest economy. And so that's why my book is focused on the Deng era. And in the Deng era, what we need to understand is that even though Deng chose not to adopt Western-style democracy, he radically changed uh, the governing system. And I call this directed improvisation uh, for two reasons. The concept of directed improvisation captures the changing role of the central government. Under Mao, the central government was a commander and a dictator. And it basically told localities throughout the country exactly what they were supposed to do. But under Deng, he changed the role of Beijing from a commander to a director, like a musical director, you know, uh, as a, a player who sets up the conditions for experimentation rather than telling them what to do. And in these conditions being set up by Beijing, local governments throughout China were then freed up. They had this creativity and this space to experiment and to explore local uh, conditions. So the Deng era is characterized by directed improvisation, where you had a lot of decentralization and a lot of experimentation going on despite the fact that it is an authoritarian regime. Uh, The Xi era, however, has departed from this uh, Deng system uh, in many ways, uh, and this is quite well documented uh, in the media. He has clamped down on political freedoms. He has re-centralized power. Um, So unfortunately, uh, reducing many of the adaptive elements that have made China Successful. So I think these are the sort of basic uh, facts and the differences in stages uh, of China's changes that are useful to keep in mind.
2: Uh, let, let me uh, go ahead with another uh, uh, question on uh, the transition. China was very successful in this experimentation, for example, because avoided the problems uh, that uh, Russia faced in its own uh, transition how this was possible and uh, was the one very peculiar institution, which is the state ownership of the land, uh, one possible explanation of how those uh, originally apparently similar countries had very different Mm -hmm. transitions?
0: Yeah, so for me to explain or to understand the differences between China and Russia, uh, and, and that, you know, reflects uh, my bias as a political scientist. I believe the most important difference is, is about the politics, right? And what had happened in the former Soviet Union and subsequently in Russia is uh, that they dismantled the communist system overnight. And, and what they had in place of that was a fragmented democracy that did not have state capacity did not have any capacity to discipline its own agents. So what had happened is that you see just this proliferation of asset stripping and and corruption uh, in Russia that debilitated the country. What had happened in China was that the the reformist leadership under Deng uh, insisted that they were going to keep the authoritarian rule of the CCP Uh, But at the same time, he actually introduced a very important democratizing reforms within the bureaucracy by decentralizing power, uh, by giving uh, by delegating authority, uh, by giving them the right incentives and so forth. And so this is the crucial political difference between the China case and and the case of, of Russia. And so you mentioned uh, land and collective ownership. And so the way that China tried to transition itself from plan to market is that China adopted a variety of transitional institutions, right? institutions that are sort of with some element of market and some element of plan. And then they, they gradually grew out of these transitional institutions. So by, by this strategy, they were able to uh, avoid many of the overly disruptive changes that we saw in Russia that ultimately uh, debilitated both the economy and the political system.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it? a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Let me introduce now a very interesting concept that you present, not here in this book, but on your recent articles uh, on foreign affairs, you talked about autocracy with democratic characteristics. So this is a very, uh, very very special way to describe the Chinese case. Can you tell us what do you mean and where did this play the role in this successful transition?
0: Yes, th- uh, thanks for uh, mentioning this foreign affairs piece. Um, I was a uh, This appeared in the May-June issue 2018 of Foreign Affairs. This was an issue on democratic backsliding, and I was invited to explain the Chinese case. And the context is that the broad understanding of China uh, in the West is that China had Uh, reformed itself economically without any political reforms. So that is the conventional wisdom, that China had no political reforms. And what I argue in this essay is that, in fact, China had political reforms under Deng. That was the first thing that he did. Uh, But the political reforms that Deng undertook was not in the form of elections, um, and that is why many Western observers miss that, because they have a narrow understanding of political reforms as elections. And what I argue is that if you look at the concrete, specific things that he introduced into the government, uh, what you see is that they are basically democratic characteristics. Um, now, they are not democracy. They are not elections They are not formal protection of individual rights and so forth, uh, but they are democratic in the sense that they capture some of the key features that we associate with democracy. This includes accountability of the bureaucracy, uh, competition, um, and partial limits on power. Right. So there is a great deal of competition in China. Competition is a very core feature of China's political economy, even though there are no elections. So you have a great deal of regional economic competition, for example. Uh, And Deng introduced partial limits on power, such as by um, introducing uh, term limits, which he himself subscribed to, uh, and mandatory retirement. So through all of these bureaucratic reforms... He introduced the elements of accountability, competition, partial limits on power. And if you think about what they are, basically they are democratic characteristics. And he put them into um, the apparatus of a single-party autocracy. So that makes China a very unique hybrid political regime. And what I would argue is that it is these democratic characteristics that have allowed China to be adaptive to be dynamic, and to succeed economically. It was not just autocracy by itself uh, that made China great. And I think if we have a right understanding of the political foundation of China's economic success, then I think it will help alleviate our fear that you know the so-called China model is proving that autocracy is better than democracy. Uh, that is not true. Uh, The Chinese experience actually shows that even a single party autocracy needs to have democratic characteristics in order to be dynamic. In the
2: book, you you explain a lot of details about the performance evaluation system of the local political leaders. We all know that uh, their political success within the Communist Party depends on whether they meet targets or not. And in this book, you describe in details the way that this performance is measured and, and this form of accountability is used. Can you tell us how... This work, and again, whether this is part of the successful model of Chinese economic transition.
0: Yes, this is absolutely one of the central features of uh, China's political system and a foundation of its economic success. Um, in China, it is called the cadre evaluation system, which is the uh, the, the list of targets that are created to evaluate the performance of local officials throughout China. And this is the equivalent of um, China's accountability system. Uh, Now, in democracies, when we think about accountability, uh, it is achieved through elections, right? In China, there are no elections, but instead the substitute for it would be the evaluation system and the targets that are created, because the targets are basically telling the local officials that these are the outcomes that we we will hold you accountable for, that you will be rewarded for achieving them or punished for not achieving them. Um, And Deng knew that this was very important. So if you look at his December 1978 speech, which was the speech that launched reform and opening, he mentioned accountability uh, at least 10 times. So that was his first order of business was to change the way officials were evaluated. Uh, Under Mao, the way the officials were evaluated and promoted was basically based on their ideology, their expressions of loyalty. You know, and, and so that created a great deal of problems, even disaster, because people didn't care about outcomes. They were just trying to prove how much they uh, loved Mao and how ideologically fervent they were. Uh, under Deng, he was a very pragmatic leader, and he changed the targets to make it very clear that in the early period of China's uh, reform and opening, they would be measured concretely and narrowly based on economic performance. And so with that very unusual, narrow definition of bureaucratic performance, that turned the communist bureaucracy into a into a really powerful capitalist machine that was solely focused on economic growth. And so that is why, until this day, you still see local officials in China being extremely growth-oriented. Uh, but there is a complication to add to that, which is, that as China developed and grew rich over time, these targets have also evolved. And and this evolution is something that we don't hear very much about uh, when we read about China, which is that there has been in the past 10 years especially a proliferation of targets imposed of local officials such that it is no longer enough that they do economic growth. They also have to deliver more than 100 targets. right? And so the Chinese officials today are a lot more constrained than they were in the 1980s or 1990s or 2000s.
2: Earlier, you have defined some of those devices as temporary institutions that served the transition. But some peculiarities of the Chinese environment remain, even now that we are, well, we cannot say at the end of the transition, but 40 years after it started. I'm referring, for example, to these collective Uh, ownership system of uh, um, not only land, but also now urban developments. Uh, So, um, let's say the the heritage, the modern heritage of collective China. Uh, How much of those uh, peculiar institutions remain and will they build still be successful and needed also in the future?
0: Well, in the case of collective ownership, that was a transitional institution. It was it played a very important role in the 1980s and 1990s because in the beginning of reform, private ownership was politically not allowed, um, but state ownership was extremely inefficient. And so given these two constraints, what the local governments created and Beijing endorsed was collective ownership. And this was held in the hands of very low level township uh, and village governments. Um, and they basically loaned out their reputation and their names to uh, many uh, what were de facto private entrepreneurs, right? So they were sort of hiding under the hat of collective ownership. And that allowed China to get around many uh, political kind of obstacles. Um, and it also allowed the state to s- provide a great deal of uh, resources and support for this um fledging uh, enterprise form at the time. Uh, By the time you got into the 2000s, uh, these collective uh, ownership has dramatically declined. And today they're They are almost negligible. Um, Most of them uh, were very rapidly privatized uh, in the course of the 1990s. And through these process of privatization, you actually uh, create the first generation of private entrepreneurs uh, in China. Uh, Almost all of them were evolved out of uh, collective ownership. And you might say that there was indeed corruption involved in this process. Some people benefited from this privatization. But if you compare it to the Russian case, uh, you'll see that The benefit of the collective ownership is that it was extremely broad based and spread out throughout the country. So even though there was corruption involved, um, you still created a very, very large class of private entrepreneurs uh, versus a very small class of uh, oligarchs uh, in the case uh, of Russia. And so the case of collective ownership is a very nice illustration of a transitional uh, institution.
2: Thank you very much for explaining very complex uh, issues uh, in in a very, very clear way. Uh, But let's say, so this was successful, uh, but if anything, what went wrong in this uh, very, very smooth process or what could have been done even better?
0: I think, well, I think there are many things that could have been done better, but even though taking into account, you know, that the amount of changes that China has pulled off is is already massive. I think. The question of what can be done better depends on what time period we're talking about. Uh, If we are talking about China today, then I think that there there is certainly a lot of room to do a lot of things politically better. Uh, I think the common sort of worry uh, about the current regime is the clampdown on political freedom, as well as the clampdown on decentralization and adaptive governance that has allowed China to be so experimental and uh, enterprising in the past, right? And so if we're talking about China today, I think its biggest problem is political. There is, I think, um, a great deal of misunderstanding, even within China, that, um, that their success had come from authoritarian rule, had come from having, you know, strong men in power. Um, And so it is very unfortunate that there is such a misunderstanding uh, going on within China. And so I think it is um, especially important, and that's why I wanted to write the book, for at least the, um, not only people outside of China, but even people in China, to understand that if you look seriously at China's past 40 years of history, Um, it was actually the democratizing reforms that put into the bureaucracy that has allowed China to be adaptive. So I think that political challenge is the biggest one. Uh, And then there are plenty of economic uh, challenges in China. Uh, I think the fact that, the Chinese government still controls major parts of the economy, even though there is a very large private sector. Uh, the state controls land, as you earlier pointed out. The state also controls finance, right? So these are two very important uh, financial, uh, very two very important tools or resources in the economy. Um, and I think moving forward, they would need to reduce the role of state control over these kind of resources. Otherwise, down the road, it creates a great deal of distortions. It creates room for corruption. Uh, But so far, we haven't seen China actually reducing control over these resources. If anything, I think the worry in the past years is that the size of the state sector and control of these resources have actually increased at the expense of the private sector.
2: Wow, this was very, very interesting. May I ask you... About your current project and so your potential next book.
0: Um, Yeah, so I actually have a second book uh, that is forthcoming uh, in 2020. And this is a book that builds off directly from the first book. So it's a sequel. Uh, The second book will be published by Cambridge University Press. It's called China's Gilded Age, The Paradox of Economic Boom and Vast Corruption. So this book takes a page out of my first book uh, focusing specifically on the relationship between corruption and capitalism and it will explain why is it that you know China has achieved uh such tremendous economic boom despite having uh apparently very serious uh corruption and what I will show you in this book is that the short answer is that Um, Because what matters for capitalism is not the level of corruption, but it's the structure of corruption. And China's structure of corruption is very much concentrated in elite exchanges of power and wealth. Uh, China has actually done a relatively good job at controlling embezzlement, uh, petty theft, and petty bribery, uh, forms of corruption that directly inhibit uh, entrepreneurial activities. Uh, The kind of corruption that is most serious in China are transactional exchanges between elites. Uh, And I will further show in the second book that this form of corruption is not unique to China. It is actually uh, as prevalent in advanced capitalist economies like the United States except that in the United States, this form of corruption is institutionalized and extremely sophisticated. So this will be a book that revisits the conventional wisdom about corruption and capitalism.
2: Well, good luck with your next books and with your current projects, but for the time being, congratulations for this book, which is a great, great book. It's a great book about China. It's a great book on political economy. It's a great book on development economics and also has the merit to be very original in the sense that it is... uh, non-conformist in its description of uh, of China. So uh, you start reading it and uh, you might end with a different opinion on uh, the reasons of Chinese success and the characteristics of the Chinese regime. Thank you very much. Uh, This was uh, How China Escaped the Poverty Trap by Yuan Yuanang and this book was published by Cornell University Press in 2016. Thank you very much for being with us, Yuan.
0: Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure to be on your podcast. New books in economics brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy.